0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Revelation and chapter 7. See, you're going to find this on page 1032 of the Pew Bible. So we're reading the second half of chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Hear the word of God. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. In the first half of chapter seven, we met with the four winds of woe being restrained. The four angels at the four corners of the earth under the control of Christ were holding the four winds in check. And this Jesus, the angel of the covenant, arose from the east with the seal of the living God. And those on whom he placed his seal are the ones who are able to stand in the tribulation. All in whom the Holy Spirit dwells are sealed by God and preserved for heaven, and the full and perfect number of those sealed is denoted symbolically by 144,000, 12 squared times 10 cubed, both of them biblical numbers. Well, so now we come to the second half of chapter 7, and John is permitted to see this vast company assembled It is one of the most glorious visions that any human being has ever witnessed. J.I. Packer gives us a helpful corrective. He says, one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby is that we cherish great thoughts of ourselves and have as a rule small thoughts of God. I think there's a lot of truth to that. John sees this entire church triumphant standing before the throne of God. And in his description, he affirms that the Lamb shares equality with God. He sees all the redeemed, the gathered church standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And it is a great multitude that no one could number, no one but the Father himself. Because as Paul tells Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows you and he knows me, and this vast company is assembled from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and it implies that the evangelistic work of the church militant has been fruitful. The word has been attended by the Spirit. Countless souls have been converted, and they're wearing these unsoiled garments of white which signify holiness. And they carry palm branches to denote the great salvation of Jesus. How do I know this? Well, you remember the crowd that gathered for Passover. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And in John's vision, Christ has conquered sin and death, Satan and the penalty of hell. No wonder this vast, immeasurable congregation is joyfully singing praises. With a loud voice, salvation, they say, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But also present were myriads of angels and the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And these celestial beings worshiped God by falling prostrate and offering exuberant praise. And they first cry out, Amen. And in their declaration of consent, they're affirming the cry of the church. And then in harmony with the saints, they join in ascribing unhindered tribute, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And that sevenfold description is not exhaustive, but simply symbolic of completeness. Every virtue that is good, Every attribute that is divine, every quality that is worthy of praise belongs to God. And the angels, myriads upon myriads that cannot be numbered, are unanimous in their desire to sing the praises of the Most High. And for his goodness and his grace and his glory, we know that he's worthy to be praised and glorified. And then the elder identifies the assembly as ones coming out of the great tribulation in verse 14. And I believe that this innumerable company is comprised of more than just the souls that are alive at the end of time. As a matter of fact, I believe this company is made up of all the saints throughout all the ages because all Christians endure trials Indeed, in John 16, to his disciples, the Lord Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation, every one of you. And so likely the great tribulation refers to the many tribulations through which all of us have to enter the kingdom. And that is the great tribulation includes all the believers through history who have suffered. Hendrickson says all the persecutions and trials of God's people symbolized by the seals are included in it. So these are the ones who've escaped from their earthly trials and temptations. And no sooner we find out do we enter a fallen world, but we encounter many troubles. Isn't that what it says in Job 5? Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. This is inevitable in a sin-cursed world. Why should we be surprised? Misery always follows in sin's wake, and that's exactly what has happened. Human nature, itself fallen, starts crumbling into dust the day we're born. But the new birth, it does sanctify and it does sweeten our trials, but it doesn't take them away. Christ removed the sting of death, but our physical bodies must still die. So here John sees this noble army of all the saints standing before the throne and God's Christ, and this vast crowd is now freed from pain and danger freed from anxiety and suffering and sorrow. Isn't that an amazing truth? They freely serve God here, and they're sheltered by his glorious and his gracious presence. And Christ the Lamb, as the shepherd of the sheep, is forever in their midst, the one like a son of man standing in the midst of the lampstands. And their thirst is fully and forever quenched as they are guided to the springs of living water because great was their desire for the Lord. As the psalmist says, there's nothing I desire on earth besides you. In heaven, the deep abiding desire is fully and finally satisfied by the living God himself. And the warmth and the intimacy of that fellowship through Christ is unmatched. You can't even imagine how close and intimate it is. And I think the text paints for us a striking portrait of the blessedness of the glorified saints. We're told here that God himself personally has wiped away every tear from their eyes. Personally. From every sickness healed. From every trial rescued. From every hardship delivered. Every need is met. Every desire is fulfilled. Every pleasure that's holy is provided. And at one point, an elder approaches John, and he poses two very important questions. Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? So the questions who and from where are answered by the elder himself. The garments that they wear have been prepared by the blood of the Lamb. It is to what the text says about that blood that I wish to direct our attention First of all, the Lamb's blood delivers the saints from the just consequences of sin. Isn't that what he implies? The Bible teaches that sin puts a soul in danger of suffering wrath. Ephesians 5:6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, and that's the just penalty for transgressions. We are liable to punishment. So the Lord, says Moses, will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. And yet saints around the throne come out of the great tribulation and escape God's wrath. And thus we see, don't we, that the blood of Christ is so potent that it can deliver from the penalty of sin? And thus John tells us in chapter 1 that he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. His blood is capable of warding off condemnation and the curse of eternal death. And the blessed situation of the saints proves that his blood removes us from danger and harm. So first of all, it delivers us from the just consequences of sin. Second of all, the lamb's blood cleanses the saints from the guilt and liability of sin. They've washed their robes, we're told, in the blood of the lamb. So we discover that not only does it deliver from the penalty, but it cleanses from the guilt of sin. And obviously the atoning death of Christ is effective in dealing with our debts. Isn't that what we pray? Forgive us our debts. Every one of us has a conscience. And every conscience reminds us of our guilt before God. You've fallen short. You've missed the mark. You've insulted the Lord and you deserve death. And hence the psalmist says, who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? And it's a rhetorical question. Nobody can stand. But his blood, we're told, not only shields us from danger, but it also removes sin's debt. The blood of Jesus, his son, claims John cleanses us from all sin. First John 1, 7. Hence, the elder says, therefore, they're before the throne of God. They serve day and night in his temple without the least condemnation. And on the basis of Christ's finished work, we may stand in God's holy presence. So do you see how the lamb's blood cleanses us from all the guilt and liability of sin? It not only delivers us, it not only cleanses us, but third, the lamb's blood purifies us from the filth and corruption of our sin. Because sin not only exposes us to the penalty, not only loads us with guilt, it also leaves a stain. In Jeremiah 2, it says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Now, nothing can remove that stain from the soul but the shed blood of Christ. Nothing. It's like spiritual bleach which completely removes the blemish. In fact, even the best spiritual services rendered by the most noble saints is imperfect and defiled in God's sight. And those services can be acceptable only if they're washed and made white by the blood. So it's not only delivering us from the penalty of sin. It's not only cleansing us from the guilt of sin, but it's also whitening us from the stain of sin. Verse 14, they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that a glorious truth? That the blood of Christ washes white. And I think that seems strange to my ears. How is it that blood can make the saints white? Because when, in my experience, when blood spills onto my clothes, the very opposite happens. They're stained. Indeed, blood stains, I'm told, are some of the most difficult spots to remove. Yet here they are, gathered saints, wearing clothes that are whitened by blood. And the biblical answer is simply this this is no ordinary blood, it's precious blood. And of course, it's what God promised when calling Israel to repentance in Isaiah 1 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. To be pure in God's sight has always been the desire of the penitent, the truly penitent soul. David said, you remember in his confession, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And God answered that prayer by sending his own son to make an atonement in his own blood. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, says Paul, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now these are astonishing truths. What kind of blood can do these things? It's the blood of the lamb. It is blood of such singularity that nothing else compares with it. And the Bible gives us at least four descriptions of this blood of the Lamb that I'd like us to consider in the last part of this consideration. First, the Lamb's blood is precious blood, more so than anything else on earth. Neither silver nor gold nor any other treasure can redeem a single soul in this room. Psalm 49, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Because the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Not even the whole world. Not even an earth full of riches is sufficient. The price is far too great. And no one here or anywhere else could ever save a friend or a family member from the grave. Spurgeon says, death comes and wealth can't bribe him. Hell follows and no golden key can unlock its dungeons. There is nothing that you and I can offer that will redeem so much as one person. Be it son, daughter, grandchild, grandpa, nobody. And yet Jesus Christ, who died and rose, has redeemed by his blood a vast host of souls that is innumerable. And Peter says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. That was the price of your redemption and mine. And his blood is infinitely precious. All blood is precious, to be honest with you. Abel's blood, saint's blood. But no blood is as precious as this blood. The God before whom all flesh will stand demands from every one of us a reckoning. And in the presence of absolute holiness, what could we ever offer him? Can you imagine the unbeliever standing before the triune God in its splendorous holiness with nothing to say? Edwards says this, we've said it before, and I quote him, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary? We value things based on utility and quality and beauty and or singularity, don't we? By singularity, I mean uniqueness and distinctiveness. And few things, if any, possess all of these qualities that make them valuable. Precious stones—they're beautiful, they're rare, they're singular, but they're of slight utility. What can you do with them? Certain tools have great utility. But they're so common, there's no singularity. If we find something possessing all four, we know that it's precious. Well, the blood of the lamb is excellent and beautiful and rare and effective in saving sinners. Its utility is found in its sufficiency to deliver and to cleanse and to whiten, as we just looked at. So we ask ourselves, what is most precious to us? Is it the blood of the lamb? Because the price is equal to the purchase. His his blood is sufficient to redeem the church. God so valued the souls of his own people that he didn't even spare his own son, but made him shed his precious blood. So it's precious. Secondly, the lamb's blood is innocent because it's from a man who is without blemish. Jesus Christ had no personal sin, never an errant thought, no evil word, no sinful deed. The author says he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Innocent as a child, innocent as a youth, innocent as an adult in the home, at the workbench, in the synagogue, he's innocent. And if anybody had a reason to find fault with Jesus, it was Judas Iscariot. Only in this way could Judas somehow shift the blame from himself to Jesus. And if he could have found anything worthy of death in Christ, he would have said so. If even in a single point, if Christ was frustrated at some point, If he could raise one suspicion, he would have won the day. But Judas, his betrayer, at the end of his life said this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And of course, we all know that it's the blood that makes atonement for sins because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God never has and he never will forgive a single sin apart from shed blood. And those who think somehow that everything's going to work out and yet fail to apply this blood to their own souls by a sincere faith in Christ will discover far too late that they've been fatally self-deceived. This is why Jesus assumed a human nature, so that he could bleed. He was punished in our place. He substituted himself for each one of us. And guilty sinners can be reconciled to God only through His innocent blood. And I hope we see the need for that priceless innocent blood. God never accepted a flawed sacrifice. The lamb had to be unblemished. And now we know why. Christ's innocence was integral to His acceptability as a sacrifice. And that explains the necessity. The absolute necessity of the virgin birth, no original sin. So it is precious and it is innocent. And third, the lamb's blood is covenant blood because it's according to promise. God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, speaking to the devil. And that's the first recorded announcement of the covenant of grace. God promised that the woman's seed would accomplish salvation. The bruising of the devil's head took place at Calvary when Jesus died. And that's how he could forgive iniquity and yet by no means clear the guilty. Moses must have been scratching his head. What are you talking about? You forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but you'll by no means clear the guilty? All the blood of lambs and goats and bulls simply foreshadowed the blood of Christ. And in the fullness of time at that Passover meal, our Lord Jesus raised that cup. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And thus we see that God kept his covenant pledge, his ancient promise. He has saved the church of all ages by the blood of the woman's seed. It's covenant blood. It is blood that saves according to covenant promise. And the question is, are you a member of the covenant? Have you received Christ into your heart and applied that blood to your soul? It's precious, it's innocent, it's covenant and third, or fourth, and finally, it is divine. It belongs to the second person of the Trinity. And the importance of this quality is seen in the nature of the sins against the Lord. When sinners break the law, we offend an infinite and thrice holy God. Well, justice demands that the punishment correspond to the crime. For anyone to endure infinite weight of God's wrath, which is what a sin against an infinite being demands, he has to be able to bear it. No one can do this. No one can bear the infinite weight of God's wrath, except a being who is himself of equal infinite power. Scripture teaches that the blood by which you and I are redeemed belongs to an infinite person. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock elders, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That blood that throbbed through the veins of Christ belonged to a divine person. So I think tonight that we have every reason to give thanks for Christ's blood, which is precious, innocent, covenant, and divine. When a compound being like you and I is dissolved, the soul separated from the body, each of those parts returns to its own place. The body returns to the dust and the soul returns to the father who originally gave it. And a Christian in this world, therefore, is simply gold in the rough. At death, the dross is removed. The pure gold of a saved and a sanctified soul is ushered into heaven. And the believer's life and warfare end together. The conflict is over. And no longer is there any struggle between flesh and spirit. The victory has been won. While you're still alive, we subdue sin. When we die, that's the victory over sin. Now and forevermore, the sanctified soul stands triumphant in Christ, and grace has won the day. And all the believing and praying and hearing and partaking cannot do what death does. (laughs) The saint then is freed, not only from the penalty of sin and not only from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. And the separated soul of the Christian has become free from all danger of sin. There's no longer any sin in it. Temptation can no longer strike that soul. The glorified soul is now out of reach to those who would ever ensnare it. And that soul's fellowship with other glorified saints is sweet and delightful. There is a reunion. On earth, corruption always spoiled our fellowship when we enjoyed each other's company. But now in holiness, the glorified soul communes in perfect harmony. More importantly, it fellowships in perfect communion with Christ. And as I close, let me just say this. All the pleasures of this life, and there are many. All those pleasures are nothing but a sip compared to those of the next. David says to God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, eternal pleasures, solid joys. Every pleasure that we now enjoy is tempered by a soul that's tainted with sin. But when that soul is separated from the body, there's no sin to hinder it. And the greatest pleasures that we enjoy in this body are simply foretastes of heaven. They bear no proportion to those that we will enjoy forever in heaven. We will see Christ as he is, and thus we'll see truth unencumbered, perfect freedom. Because to see him face to face, can you imagine? To see Christ face to face is to know him as he is and to be like him. It's what theologians call the beatific vision a transforming vision, and all those deep mysteries that racked our brains here will be evident there. And the knowledge of Christ will be more sweet and more ravishing and more pleasant than ever. And we will live forever basking in the unspeakable joys of heaven. So thank God for the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous vision of an innumerable company of glorified saints, of angels, of living creatures, all praising you and the Lamb who was slain. We thank you for his blood, and we pray that you'll help us to grow ever more in our appreciation of it. Receive our praise, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.